right, welcome to In Your Corner with Core Physical Therapy. My name is Scott McKenzie, and this podcast is uniquely positioned. And what I mean by that, we bring the medical industry, the medical professionals to you, and we talk about better pain management. We talk about rehab after surgery. We talk about improved mobility. And we talk about preventative care. And you know what else? We talk about so much more on this particular podcast. Now, thank you for joining this podcast. So let's get on with the interview. All right, once again, welcome to In Your Corner with Core Physical Therapy. Remember to go out to corephysicaltherapy.com. If you have any questions, comments, or concern, and if you want to take a journey to better health, corephysicaltherapy.com is your first location. Okay. The elephant in the room is COVID, and we're going to be talking about COVID, but we have two great people that are going to be able to discuss COVID, and that's not me. That's Dr. Rick and Dr. Frederick. For the listeners out there, Dr. Fred, please give us a little background on who you are. Sure, thanks for having me. Um, so I'm Dr. Fred Eccles. I'm the health commissioner for the city of St. Louis. Uh, for the last two and a half years, I served as the director of health for the city of St. Louis, leading um, the health department in uh, the city of St. Louis uh, in the COVID-19 pandemic um, response efforts. And that included leveraging resources across the public and the private sector, establishing new relationships that we didn't have before, and doing everything that we could to protect and inform the community that we're charged to serve, which is the city of St. Louis residents. Uh, 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 street cred. That's what, that's what comes to mind. At least you know exactly what's, uh, what we're going to be talking about and that subject matter. Dr. Rick, it's all up to you now. Make it happen, Captain. Dr. Eccles, first of all, thank you very much for showing up and coming. Um, just to be fair, he has helped me innumerable times with some of my entertainers, some of my athletes, and, and he's just a great guy. So we're really lucky to have him. And, and before we get started, you kind of discuss this a little bit, but kind of tell us about your day-to-day activities. How, how do you interact? Um, what, what, what does this mean, being the head of uh, – health department for the city of St. Louis, and, and, and specifically, what does that mean in terms of COVID and the city of St. Louis? And so the last two years have been very atypical uh, in this position, uh, managing a, a, um, a pandemic in addition to overseeing the uh, day-to-day action of the health department, essentially what we call our core functions uh, for the health department, which include you know, communicable disease surveillance, disease surveillance, um, as well as environmental health issues, um, such as community sanitation, vector control, animal care and control activities, um, as well as uh, air, things such as air pollution and emergency preparedness and response. Um, so adding COVID-19 on top of that has been really challenging, uh, particularly for the health departments, not only the city of St. Louis Department of Health, um, but local public health agencies across the nation, because um, a lot of us didn't have the proper infrastructure. So there was a lot of disinvestment um, into the public health infrastructure. And so, you know, at the start of my team with the city of St. Louis Department of Health, um, we only had uh, about 80 employees. And so imagine having 80 employees that are responsible for um, uh, conducting program activities for over 15 programs for a population of over 300,000. That's really um, not, not uh, a good look for, for any city. And so one of the things that I work to do is advocate for um, additional workforce um, as well as workforce um, to improve workforce development. The other thing that I inherited was the organization that had not been properly developed. And so adding 
COVID-19 on top of that was a lot of work that I just had to do myself to bring the programs up to speed so that we could do everything that we were um, responsible for doing as a local public health agency. Um, and so the, again, the last two years have not been typical years, but the other thing that we, um, I was adamant about not doing, even during the COVID-19 pandemic is losing sight of those other issues that continue to impact the health of our community, uh, such as sexually transmitted infections, uh, chronic lung disease, such as asthma, COPD, um, as well as uh, lead. So lead is still an issue in the city of St. Louis. And so we could not lose sight of those other issues because what we also found over the course of the pandemic is that those same issues increase individuals' risk for severe complications, including hospitalization and even dying uh, if they were exposed to and infected with SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19. Um, so there's a lot that we had to do over the last, uh, the last two years um, in addition to those things, managing a vaccination rollout, doing communication for a novel virus, you know, there's a lot of skepticism across the community about, you know, what the virus actually originated from, was it in a lab, was it related to close exposures, and a lot of the questions we just don't have answers to, but making sure that we were doing our very best to inform the community in a non-biased fashion um, was, really, um, was really important for us because we know that the only way to really empower a community um, effectively is one, giving them the facts so they can make informed decisions for themselves and their families. So that's been our approach. Uh, and so far it's worked pretty good uh, in the city of St. Louis. Uh, this last surge really caught a lot of organizations and uh, cities by surprise. Um, I think everyone you know, thought that it was kind of hit after when Delta hit and we got through the Delta surge and then Omicron came. And so we knew based off of the mutations that were reported um, by the World Health Organization and the CDC that the um, that it was going to be more infectious, but we were not sure about the um, if it was going to be more virulent or not. And so far, you know, we're, we're grateful that it hasn't panned out to be more virulent than the Delta variant. Um, but we are seeing a lot of a lot more cases, a lot more hospitalizations um, related to um, SARS-CoV-2 infection with the Omicron variant. So, so that kind of leads me to my next question, and that is, what is the status of the medical facilities, ERs, ICUs, hospitals? Uh, are they overloaded? Is St. Louis okay? Is, is the country okay in terms of facilities and, and access, or are we at a breaking point? So, so where are we? Because you read the surge has been so uh, robust. Uh, have we been able to keep up? And, you know, unfor unfortunately, we really haven't been able to keep up for a lot of reasons. One, um, public health surveillance typically lag behind uh, real real-time transmission, a real-time spread in our community. And so even with the detection of the Omicron variant, it's likely that the variant was already in several countries before it was even detected. Um, we were just grateful that the scientists in South Africa had the knowledge and the skills to actually de to identify the mutation. And then once the, muta once the mutation was identified, the other thing we had to address was the stigma associated with it. Um, because similar to what happened in Wuhan, China, uh, when the... Um, the Omicron variant was detected or reported, um, people called it the South African variant. So they assumed that just because the individuals traveled to South Africa, that they, would, they were more likely to have been exposed to uh, the Omicron variant. But we really don't know where it originated. We just know it was detected uh, in, in South Africa. And so as we looked at the how the Omicron variant has spread across all pockets of um, populations uh, in the state of Missouri, across the nation, um, what we've seen is 
uh, that a lot more people have been become infected. And so uh, as a result, we have more cases, we have more hospitalizations. Uh, in the city, in the St. Louis region in particular, we've, um, the hospitals have been hit really hard. Um, so we've set records as it relates to the seven-day moving average for um, uh, hospitalization, hospitalizations related to um, COVID-19. I believe last, last week, um, 1,399 uh, beds were filled with individuals due to COVID-19. Wow. So you think about that, and you also have to think about, you have to, we have to remember that the individuals who are providing medical services also live in our community. So the hospitals have also had to deal with their own staff becoming infected and having to isolate and be off of work. And so the hospitals have really been handicapped um, during this last surge. And this is something that was really concerning for us, even when we experienced the surge in the fall and winter of, uh, 20, uh, of 2020. Um, we were really concerned about that. And so we really experienced that here. And I think the thing that, uh, that, helped, that has helped us get through it is that the, uh, we've had a tool that wasn't available to us in 2020, and that is the um, COVID-19 vaccines. So if we didn't have um, vaccines available, it's likely that our hospitals will really be um, uh, over capacity and we will be seeing a much more dire situation um, if the vaccines were not available. So, so let's take a step back just for a second and, and tell everybody, how, how do you get COVID? How do you get the Omicron? Um, and and do, we, do we have any concerns about Delta? And later I'm going to ask you about what the next variant is going to be. But for right now, tell our listeners, what, how do you get it? Is it, is it? Well, explain it to us. So similar to the influenza virus and other respiratory illnesses, so the um, SARS-CoV-2 is spread by respiratory transmission, meaning, you know, if you're around individuals who are talking, singing, and they aren't, and they don't have a face covering on, um, as they're talking, they're releasing these respiratory droplets. And if they're infected with the virus, they're infect their respiratory droplets will also be infected. And so again, if you're if you don't have a face covering on, if they don't have a face covering on, it's more like it's highly likely that you'll you'll be in, inhaling are breathing in those infected respiratory droplets. And so as you breathe in those infected respiratory droplets, um, the virus, SARS-CoV-2, can attach to our cells and then replicate and cause uh, symptoms, which is COVID-19. So the infection alone isn't caused COVID-19. COVID-19 is the uh, disease manifestation that results from SARS-CoV-2 infection. And so a lot of the mitigation measures were aimed at targeting um, the, the... transmission, uh, which is in inhaled in respiratory droplets. So pulmonary transmission is the really the primary way that it spreads. And so that's why we require, we in the city of St. Louis, we do require through our face covering mandate that individuals wear a face covering when they're in public spaces. Um, and that's been a, a key uh, message that we've been issuing over the course of the pandemic. Um, and that's why we saw a significant reduction in cases when we first mandated face coverings, not only in the city of St. Louis, but in the St. Louis region. Uh, and unfortunately, that has been politicized. And, you know, we have to, there's uh, questions around personal liberties and those things. Um, but we also have to one of the things we had to communicate to the community is you know, when, you're in the, when you're in a pandemic, you know, local public health agencies are responsible for overseeing the protection of health for the entire population not just certain segments, but for the entire population. So a lot of the activities, a lot of our recommendations um, are made to do just that, to make sure we're protecting not only those who are alive and well, but those who consider our most vulnerable population in the city of St. Louis. And, and tell us about surface transmission. So everybody's cleaning off their, 
their chairs and they're cleaning off surfaces and they're worried about um, contact transmission. Uh, what what kind of what is the basis uh, for the concern about is, is there a concern about contact transmission? I think early on that was um, a greater concern about surface uh, surface to person transmission, um, particularly because we were learning a lot more about the the virus at the time. And what we've seen uh, to date is that the majority, the primary route of transmission, is um, inhaling. Uh, infected respiratory droplets. So respiratory transmission has been the predominant uh, mode of transmission for SARS-CoV-2. Um, but the surfaces can be uh, a vector. And so if there's a lot of infected respiratory droplets on a particular surface and people are touching the surface and then putting their hand in their mouth or putting in their uh, in their eyes, that can lead to, um, lead to transmission. But that's uh, much less likely uh, than respiratory transmission. And, and since you talked about face coverings a little bit, what are, tell us about good face coverings, bad face coverings. How, how do we decide what kind of face covering we should be using? And that's, a, that's a really great question. So one of the points of contention that has been raised by community members and um, across the nation is, you know, do we need uh, medical grade uh, face coverings? And what we found is it's not the, really the grade of the face covering. So whether it's a uh, cloth face covering, a KN95, um, a, a KN94, or N95 mask. If, it, if the mask does not fit well, it can't do its job. And so what we found is that as long as the, the face covering is properly fitting, meaning that it covers your nose and your mouth, and it fits snugly aside, uh, across the sides of your cheek, um, that is effective in reducing uh, the potential for exposure to SARS-CoV-2 SARS virus. And so that's the message that we've had to convey as well. And we, we're continuing to um, have to emphasize the importance of wearing a well-fitting mask, whether it's a N95, KN95, or a face covering, or if it's a, a gator, it needs to uh, fit snugly and fit well on an, on an individual's face in order for it to be effective. I think there have been some missed messages around face coverings coming from the national level, even to locally, um, as it relates to uh, what works best. Um, we know that you know, medical grade equipment is reserved typically for a certain population, particularly medical providers who are have a higher risk of being exposed to aerosolized uh, materials, either doing procedures, et cetera, uh, compared to the general population. Um, um, and, and so one of the things that we had to do is make sure that we were reserving those resources for um, our most vulnerable individuals. In this case, would be the medical professionals who are providing procedures on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, the latest um, pro program from the Biden administration where they're gonna issue N95s to everyone in across the U.S. or the U.S. residents um, sends a mixed message um, because uh, it's not just about having an N95 or medical grade equipment. It's about having something that fits properly on your face. And so that's something that we have to really, that we'll have to continue to um, message across all of our uh, jurisdictions over the months ahead. That, that was excellent. And I think people really need to understand that because there's, there's so much information about masks and some of it's obviously not only been politicized, but just wrong. So I think understanding just that message is, is really helpful. So what, what can an individual do? Uh, obviously, one, wear a face covering. What else can we do to try to avoid either contacting COVID or trying to limit the severity of COVID? What, you're, you're sitting home, you're listening to this podcast. You know, what, what's the take-home message? What can we do to help ourselves? 
So the other measures, other measures that we've recommended over the course of the pandemic include social distancing. Um, this is for individuals when you're out in public spaces and or when you're in the company of someone who does, does not live in your household. It's really important to maintain a safe distance. And that distance is typically six feet because what we found early on uh, during the pandemic was that the infected respiratory droplets um, typically travel about six feet. And so if you maintain about six feet of distance between yourself and other individuals, particularly those who do not live in your household, I mean, you're less likely to become exposed to um, SARS-CoV-2 or inhale uh, the infected respiratory droplets from someone else. So that's uh, one recommendation. The other recommendation is also to practice good hand hygiene. So washing your hands regularly with soap and water for at least 20 seconds, then using hand sanitizer when soap and water are not available. Uh, this is important as we talked about a little bit earlier, you know, by preventing the surface, um, surface to person transmission. So if you're touching those highly, those frequently touched surfaces, and you don't know if the person before you or after you um, has uh, COVID and they sneeze in their hand and then touch the surface, you know, washing your hands regularly um, for at least 20 seconds help reduce the likelihood that um, uh, you'll, you'll transmit um, SARS-CoV-2 to yourself uh, through um, touching uh, contaminated surfaces. Um, the other thing that we recommend, uh, in, in addition to washing hands, so there are frequently touched surfaces in your workspace, in your home, uh, Wash, wipe those down regularly. So it can be every hour, just uh, every two hours. Just develop a cadence where, you, where you're uh, wiping those surfaces down uh, to prevent um, uh, trans, potential transmission uh, from those surfaces. Um, and last, but definitely not least, vaccinations. So we know that COVID-19 vaccines have gotten a lot of attention over the uh, last uh, 12, 13 months. Um, due to uh, a lot of different um, issues that have that have been raised. One issue that was raised was uh, people thought that the vaccines were developed too fast. And what people don't know is that um, going all the way back to 2001, when we had the SARS outbreak, then we had the MERS outbreak a few years later, then we had H1N1. So there's a lot of research that was being done on coronaviruses in particular. Um, and so we didn't, the researchers didn't have to start from scratch. And there was several billion dollars that were um, dedicated from by the federal government for the research and development of the vaccines. Uh, no shortcuts were taken. That was another question that, that would often come up um, for the vaccine. So the same clinical trial or the same regulations that are in place for other pharmaceutical interventions that are approved by the FDA were also in place for um, uh, the COVID-19 vaccines. What most people fail to realize is that when you're in, the, in a pandemic, you have one disease entity that's causing millions and millions of cases. You have a lot of people that can participate in the clinical trials, and you also can have a lot of individuals um, enrolled in the trials until so you can determine the effectiveness and the safety of the, um, uh, of the product that you're, that you're looking at. And so in this case, the vaccines um, were... Uh, tested according to protocols that were established by the FDA. Uh, that data was reviewed by um, the CDC, uh, the NIH, as well as the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, which is an um, a independent organization, independent body of subject matter experts across the United States that come together just to look at the data, to review the data, and provide feedback to the NIH and the CDC and, uh, and embed their recommendations. And so all those things were happening over the course of the pandemic that a lot of people may not, uh, may, may not have been aware of, uh, because one, um, prior to COVID-19, a lot of people were the one um, 
up to speed on FDA recommendations or FDA processes and protocols. And so this, this gave the local public health agencies an opportunity to really shed light on a lot of the changes that the FDA has made over the course of uh, the last few decades to make sure uh, pharmaceutical interventions such as vaccines were safe uh, before they were um, allowed to be given to the general public. Um, and so the vaccines that are available now we have the Pfizer vaccine and the Moderna vaccine, which are mRNA vaccines, and they are uh, two-dose vaccines, which are shown to be effective in preventing uh, severe complications due to SARS-CoV-2 infection. We also have uh, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine in the United States, uh, which is a one-dose uh, DNA-based vaccine um, that is um, available to individuals across the United States as well. And so over the course of the uh, pandemic, the local public health agencies, as well as local government, We've had to do a, a great job of um, informing the community about the history of vaccine development, uh, particularly for the COVID-19 vaccines, and making sure they understood the, the safety and effectiveness profile for each of the vaccine products. And so that's been a, a major lift um, for every organization from the CDC to the local states to the local government. And so we've had to do a lot of education over the course of the pandemic. Uh, for the, uh, related to the vaccine. Uh, one challenge that we encountered that we, we knew we, we were going to encounter, but we just weren't sure about the magnitude. And that is uh, distrust from um, minority communities as it relates to the development of new vaccines. So whenever you talk about uh, new vaccines, new vaccine products, um, there's some trauma that has been caused in minority populations um, that, that often comes as often people will talk about the Tuskegee experiment, they'll talk about Henrietta Lacks. So whenever you talk about um, medical research, um, that is a red, typically a red flag for uh, minority communities. And so one of the things that we had to do early on to obtain some level of trust um, with, the, with our community is to acknowledge the harm that our organization, the CDS St. Louis Department of uh, Health, and our partners, whether it's you know, Washington University School of Medicine, St. Louis University School of Medicine, um, uh, because that trauma is still there in our community. And so before we can go out and engage them and say, hey, we need you to take this vaccine, we need to say, hey, first, we, we recognize that we haven't been the best partner to you over the last five decades. But what we have now is something that could potentially save your life and life of your family members. And this is the data that supports that. And so although we don't have a good track record with your, with your community, uh, we're here to extend a knowledge branch to say, you know, we understand the, the harm that has been caused, but we would like to move forward. And so that has really gone a long way. But, you know, this is just the beginning. We cannot stop after the COVID-19 pandemic ends. We have to make sure that we're continually, continually engaging um, communities in a manner that's consistent, in a manner that's culturally sensitive, so that we can continue to build trust and address some of these other issues that continue to negatively impact the health of our community, and issues such as heart disease, diabetes, chronic lung disease, um, those other issues that were, in, that were in place before SARS-CoV-2 was even detected. You know, I think that was really good. And, and, you know, in my practice, I'm a sports guy, take care of a lot of professional athletes. And that's been a big issue. Um, Kyrie Irving, a very famous one, but lots of athletes and they just do not feel comfortable and they, they're straightforward and it, it is an issue. And I think the more we can reach out to them and gain their trust as a medical community, um, I think some of these areas uh, do need to be addressed and, and it's an ongoing battle. And, and now world championship, track and field world championships are coming up. We're now going through it. Again, 
trying to make sure everybody's vaccinated. And, you know, there's groups of people and you can understand it. I mean, you know, when I talk to them on a one-on-one basis, they go, doc, you know, Dr. Rick, blah, blah, blah. And I, you can't argue with them. So you really put that very well. Um, so in terms of treatment, kind of explain to us what happens. You, you, you test positive for COVID-19. What, what, what do you do now? Now what? So that leads us to isolation and quarantine restrictions, which there's been a lot of changes over the last few weeks related to isolation and quarantine. Initially, during the pandemic, you know, we, um, we, we identified that the incubation period <clears throat> for SARS-CoV-2 was roughly uh, two to 14 days. And so typic- for, typically, when we're doing communicable disease defa- surveillance and we identify um, a particular um, case of a, a disease, it has a specific incubation period. So for SARS-CoV-2 is 14 days. And so the isolation and quarantine guidelines will be based off of that incubation period. So early on, um, individuals had to quarantine uh, for 14 days if they were exposed to a COVID-positive individual. They tested positive. They then had to receive clearance from a medical provider before they could resume their um, day-to-day activities. Lately, um, actually a couple of weeks ago, CDC uh, modified the guidance again. And so now uh, for individuals who are close contacts to someone who is COVID positive, um, they have to quarantine for five days. And then it's recommended that they um, wear a face covering for five days beyond that time period. And that, that's predominantly for individuals who are not vaccinated. So if someone is fully vaccinated or have, they're up to date on their immunization, their vaccinations, they aren't required to quarantine. So that means that someone is, uh, when we say update on immunizations, we mean someone who has received two doses of the Moderna uh, COVID-19 vaccine, two doses or two doses of the Pfizer vaccine and 14 days have passed. And if they're eligible for a booster, they've received their booster dose and 14 days have passed. Um, for the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, they've received one dose of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine or um, they've received uh, also their booster dose and 14 days have passed. Um, so those individuals will be considered to be up to date on the immunization. So if they are exposed to someone who is COVID positive, they're not required to quarantine. However, they are required to monitor their symptoms for any new symptoms. If they develop new symptoms, they're encouraged to get tested uh, for COVID-19. And if they test positive, they are um, uh, advised to um, isolate for five days um, or get clearance from a medical provider before they resume their normal activities. Excellent. And so you, you, would, you would recommend for everybody to get vaccinated. Who needs the booster? Does everyone need the booster or are elderly need the booster? Immunocompromised people need the booster. How do we go from, what do we do? And so right now for booster doses, um, this is an interesting thing for booster doses. So, um, at the beginning of the pandemic, individuals were encouraged to receive the booster dose of the product that they received for their primary series. So, for example, if they received the Moderna vaccine, two doses of the Moderna vaccine, they were encouraged to get um, a booster dose of the Moderna vaccine. Um, but they've become more flexible. So right now, uh, any when you're eligible for your booster dose, you can receive any of the available COVID-19 vaccines. So if you received Moderna vaccines for your primary series, and now you're eligible, you can receive either the Moderna vaccine, a dose of the Pfizer vaccine, or a dose of the Johnson Johnson vaccine. It's just whatever your preference is at this time. 
So that's a, that was a major change that happened. Um, right now, the individuals who are eligible for the COVID-19 booster dose um, are individuals who are aged 12 and older. Um, so CDC also updated their guidance recently for um, uh, booster doses, at least the schedule for booster doses. So initially it was six months after you completed the primary series, but now it's five months after you completed the primary series. So individuals, you know, if you received two doses of the Moderna vaccine and the Pfizer vaccine and five months have passed, then you can receive uh, a booster dose. Be mindful that the Pfizer vaccine is the only vaccine that is approved for individuals from age five to 17. The Moderna vaccine and the Johnson & Johnson vaccines are only uh, uh, available for individuals um, 18 years and older. And, and so a, a common question asked is, well, I've had both my vaccine, I, I'm totally vaccinated, I've had a booster, and I just tested positive for Omicron, or I just tested positive for COVID-19. Explain to us how that happens and, and why it's important to get vaccinated, even though you might contact or contract um, COVID-19 after being vaccinated? That's an excellent question. And I think this takes me back to when the messaging was first released about um, the COVID-19 vaccine. So initially it was um, the picture that was painted was that we had these new vaccines that can prevent uh, COVID-19 disease or prevent SARS-CoV-2 infection. And we know that that's really not how vaccines work. So vaccines work to reduce the likelihood that an individual will die from uh, their infection or a particular illness, whether it's um, hepatitis A or if it's um, hepatitis C, except, uh, hepatitis B, et cetera. And so um, the message that we had to really create and fine tune for, around the COVID-19 vaccines uh, was that it cannot, the vaccine alone cannot prevent you from getting infected with SARS-CoV-2. So if I'm, if I'm fully vaccinated and I'm exposed to someone who's infected with SARS-CoV-2 and I don't have a face covering on and I inhale the infected res respiratory droplets, I too can get in, can develop COVID-19 disease. And so that's, one, that's what we had to, that's exactly what we had to convey to community members. But the, the key point here is that the vaccines saved lives by reducing the likelihood that an individual would die or require hospitalization um, if they're infected. And I think that's really an important message that, just, yes, you can get it, but it's probably going to save your life. So you need to get, you need to get vaccinated. And I, I think that's, that's key. Tell us about the current, you read all this about pills coming out and monoclonal antibodies and tell, tell us about the, the treatment, the current treatment regimen. If you get, if you test positive and you get progressively sicker, obviously if you're not really sick, which a lot of the Omicron people um, seem to have pretty minimal symptoms, but if, if you're somebody who seems to be getting a little bit sicker, um, maybe you have some respiratory distress, et cetera, well, what are the treatment options for us out there? Another great question. So um, uh, initially there were no treatment options and that was really frustrating for um, infectious disease physicians across the across the across the board, and so, um, but over the past few the past few months, um, there have been additional 
uh, treatment that have been approved by, or at least authorized under emergency use authorization by the FDA. Um, back in April of 2021, um, the FDA um, issued an emergency use authorization for monoclonal antibodies. Um, a lot of people, this is the first time people had heard of monoclonal antibody infusion treatments. And so we had to do a lot of education, particularly in the minority communities about that as well. And so what monoclonal antibody infusion treatments are, is that the monoclonal antibodies are um, antibodies that are created in the lab, but they target, they have a specific target. In this case, the monoclonal antibodies target the spike protein of SARS-CoV-2. And this is really important because the spike protein is the protein that codes for, that enables um, the virus to attach to our cells and replicate. And so if we, if we disable or um, block the spike protein from being active, we reduce the potential viral load that an individual will have and also gives his body a better opportunity to respond to the infection. And so the, there are a couple of products that have been approved or authorized under the FDA's Emergency Use Authorization Authority, um, and those have been working really well. Um, there was some concern about Regeneron, which is one of the products not being as effective against the Omicron variant. Um, there's another product that was developed by Eli Lilly uh, Pharmaceuticals um, that has been has shown to be really effective. So individuals, if you test positive and you, if you have mild to moderate symptoms, you're eligible to receive monoclonal antibody infusion uh, treatment therapy. Uh, in the city of St. Louis, we wanted to make sure that that resource is available to our most vulnerable population, particularly minority communities, um, because they are also, we're also experiencing the highest burden of COVID-19 cases in the city of St. Louis. And so we partnered with the Finia Healthcare. So we have a monoclonal antibody infusion treatment center um, in North City, located, located at the Peter Bunce um, Recreation Complex um, near the Victor Roberts building. And so we've uh, been um, making sure that resource is available. We also um, have worked with organizations to provide transportation to that, to that venue um, in the event that someone needs transportation assistance. Um, other products that have been available, so some, of new, some of the newer products are pills um, that, are, uh, that are eligible, that are uh, approved for individuals for, with mild to moderate symptoms. Um, but that's the real, that's a key right there. So making sure that individuals, if you have mild to moderate symptoms, you're eligible for those, for those treatments. Um, if you do, if you have severe symptoms, um, you're not eligible for those treatments and you have to be transported to a hospital for more emergent, um, uh, more emergent care. So that's one thing that we had to really remind people of. In some cases, instances, um, individuals have had to be turned away. Uh, from the monoclonal antibody infusion treatment center because they had severe symptoms. So instead of them sitting in a chair and getting and receiving the treatment or the therapy, we had to call EMS and have them transported to a hospital where they could receive the appropriate care. That, that's excellent. That is really excellent. So what's going to happen? What's you can't predict the future. No one can predict the future. But what's the next variant? What what can we expect? The common question that I get virtually every day is, when do you think this is going to go away? So I'll pass that question on to you. Um, what's the future? So I think this question probably came up a lot in the, during the 1918 uh, flu pandemic. <laughs> um, and so what we're seeing right now is uh, something that's going to be with us for a while. Coronaviruses have been around, the family of viruses have been around for uh, centuries. And so um, we have a new strain and the new strain is not going to go away overnight. Um, similar to other viruses like the flu, it's, likely, it's, uh, it's very likely that it's going to continue to mutate. And so we'll continue to identify new strains similar to what we've done with flu. So now if you, if you follow what has been happening with the uh, flu vaccine, so each year 
um, is comprised of different components, right? So we have um, the trivalent and we have the quadrivalent uh, flu vaccine. So one contains three strains of the flu vaccine, the other contains four strains of the flu vaccine based off of the surveillance that occurs um, on the national, international level. So we typically focus on the um, strains that are circulating the most and causing the most um, uh, adverse effects as it relates to health outcomes. Um, and, those, and that's what the CDC and the NIH um, deemed to be appropriate for a particular flu season. Uh, so that's like, that may actually occur um, with COVID-19 as well. We know that there's several vi variants that are circulating. Um, we have the Omicron, which is dominating right now, but we also know that Delta, the Delta variant is still out there. The Alpha variant is still out there. And there are other variants that we may not even know about yet that are currently circulating. Uh, seeing the amount of virus that has been circulating over the course of this last surge, I would not be surprised if there was another variant um, that, that's out there that we just haven't detected yet. And that's one thing that we know viruses do very well. They, they mutate, they change, they adapt to make sure that to, to develop properties that make them more efficient uh, so they can survive. Um, and so uh, SARS-CoV-2 is going to be with us for a while. And so we have to really adjust and learn to coexist with it. Uh, and by implementing those other mitigation measures, um, it's going to be really important to uh, make sure we do our very best to protect ourselves, our families, and our community as we learn to coexist with this virus. And, and so you brought up probably a really important point for the listeners out there who may or may not get the flu vaccine. Kind of what is the status of the flu vaccine in this current environment? And so with the CDC and local, health, local public health agencies across the nation continue to um, advise people who are eligible and do not have contraindications to receive a, a flu vaccine if they're eligible. That means anyone who is six months of age and older should receive a flu vaccine during the flu season, uh, early on in the flu season. Um, during the 2020-2021 flu season, uh, it was very mild. And that was due to a lot of a lot of different factors, but the primary factors were the mitigation measures that were in place. We had better better compliance with individuals wearing properly wearing face coverings. We also had um, other mitigation measures such as limiting hours for businesses. We had social distancing recommendations that were being uh, implemented, um, and a lot of businesses were just closed. So there wasn't there weren't a lot as many opportunities for people to gather in public spaces as we have now. And so now that the economy has kind of reopened. Businesses have reopened. There's more opportunities for individuals to um, gather in social settings, um, which typically lead to um, people becoming more lax and they're wearing a face coverings. And that's typically where we see the greatest transmission for SARS-CoV-2 and other diseases, uh, conditions that are spread by respiratory transmission. Um, so as we think about moving forward, um, uh, whether it's flu of COVID-19, the vaccines will continue to play a critical role in protecting individuals' health. We know that those are the best tools we have to prevent severe disease um, for flu and COVID-19. And so we'll continue to work to, you know, the pharmaceutical industry is working to improve the vaccines that are available. And so I wouldn't be surprised if there were new vaccine products that will be coming out um, before the end of this year um, that'll be made available to the, uh, to the general public. That's awesome. So Dr. Eccles, what do we forget? What do you want to tell our listeners that we didn't talk about? Um, I think people have forgotten about the, the role of preventative health over the course of the pandemic. So much focus has really gone, uh, has been on COVID-19 and managing COVID-19 and SARS-CoV-2. 
that people often have forgotten about the importance of managing you know, their diabetes, making sure the A1C uh, is within the, the, um, uh, the appropriate range, making sure that um, they're eating a, uh, living a healthy, healthy lifestyle, is exercising regularly, making sure they're controlling and implementing measures to uh, limit the uh, impact of those other chronic diseases on their health. And so making sure that they follow up with their medical providers for their routine screening, the annual screening, whether it's for um, uh, cancer screenings, so prostate cancer screening for males, uh, breast cancer uh, screenings for females, those things are really, really important. So we encourage everyone to, if you have a primary care physician, please make sure you follow up with them uh, at least annually um, to know your health status. Oftentimes we, um, I know in the African-American communities become an issue where you know, we neglected to take care of ourselves. And so then we don't want to know. So we know that we were eating cakes and snacks and stuff over the holidays. So I don't want them to check my A1C when I go in, but it's really important to know our health status. When we know our health status, we can really um, implement measures to improve the quality of our health and improve our quality of life. That's really what, that's really important. And that sets us up for success whether it's, you know, we're exposed to SARS-CoV-2, we're exposed to um, respiratory essential virus, other viruses that cause the common cold, or if it's the flu that we're exposed to, if we do a good job of taking care of our body on a day-to-day basis, we better position ourselves to um, have successful outcomes, even if we're exposed and get infected to some of these other communicable diseases that are circulating. Really an important message. I think that, 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 was, uh, that was very important. Dr. Eccles, thank you very much. Um, this has been really informative. Really, everyone really needs to listen to this podcast because th- this, this is the biggest question. I have two radio shows. This is the biggest question I get asked, and you have concisely really um, nailed it. So, again, thank you. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Yeah, you know, one of the questions I do have, and I just didn't realize, and you're absolutely spot on when you first started your conversation, you spoke about you know, you have your your existing workload over here. This is what we got to do. This is our existing workload. And then somebody comes by or whatever COVID comes by and then demands your attention. And it's, I, I you know, I just, for me personally, I failed to recognize that. That's true. That's a workload that demands your attention. Then other things begin to shift. And how do you manage that? And And you just don't go out and just say, Oh, I guess I need more people. Right. That's just that's a whole workforce challenge. But that's a that's an interesting challenge. Um, for me personally, I'm just Howard Hughes. I stay in my studio and I just never go out and I just uh, wipe my hands all the time. But, you know, I think I think one of the problems that that we were seeing is people were very nervous about going to ERs and and medical facilities because they thought they were going to get COVID nineteen, so they neglected. Just like Dr. Echo said, their cancer screens, getting their A1Cs, you know, getting their prostate checked, making sure that their labs were okay, et cetera. Blood glucose was okay. And, and so based on that, I think there's, you know, maybe some catching up to do. And, and maybe kids as well, you know, didn't really get appropriate screening and care. So, uh, again, that's a great take-home message because I really feel like that was neglected early on. Maybe we're catching up, we're doing a little bit better. But early on, I would hear people say, well, I had this or I had that. And, you know, on the next thing you know, they had a small MI or, you know, and they, and they were just so afraid to, to, to go to a facility. So that message in and of itself was, uh, was key. 
Yeah, and I think we're just going to have to, I mean, eventually, we're just going to have to live with it. We're going to have to figure it out. And, you know, we, we've done it in the past. We're going to have to do it with this one. I, it's, You know what I found in the uh, first part of the pandemic? Ham sandwiches and barbecue chips were delicious. <laughs> uh, I, I gorged on that stuff. All right, that is Dr. Frederick Eccles. Thank you very much. And you know, Dr. Rick, you guys were both great. Excellent, excellent piece of information. Now that's content, baby. All right, you listeners go out there. Once again, go out to In Your Corner or, or um, corephysicaltherapy.com. Find out more. Get the information. Start there. That's corephysicaltherapy.com. Again, gents, thank you very much for a wonderful, wonderful conversation. Thank you. Thank you.